Thank you, Aaron. Hey, and good morning, everyone. You know, it's, it's great to see you all. My goodness. Um, yeah, I, I like what Aaron said there. We're going to try to get joy out of this passage that we're looking at this morning. Um, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 11, because that's where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. Um, but I should probably share a little bit about just Advent. We're in the third Sunday of Advent. And, um, you know, i got to tell you, I'm a big Christmas guy. And, and I've been, a, as you can tell, a pastor for a long time. Um, and it seems like whenever we come to the Advent season... I thought I was preaching Advent sermons, but what I was really doing was preaching Christmas sermons four times. Because Advent is a, it's, it's a series of four weeks preparing ourselves for Christmas, yes, but, but it had a, a much broader perspective. It was, uh, it was looking forward to the coming because, uh, hey, face it, th- this was a perfect Advent day. Probably when you came in, it was still gray outside. I haven't looked outside, to tell you the truth after I came driving in, but uh, it was very gray, cold, and uh, typical of Advent, and that's what's happened uh, during Advent. The harvest has been taken in. Uh, Back in the day, uh, when they depended upon the agriculture, they would wonder, did we take in enough harvest to last us to the next spring? And so there was a sense of uncertainty, a little bit of tension, and um, the early church instituted this season of Advent as a time for people to reflect as the days got shorter and shorter and shorter. To reflect that there is the coming of one who has light that will bring more and more and more. There is hope that we have. Uh, so we come to this third week of Advent, and um, yeah, the days are still going to get shorter. It's still probably, we might even get snow today. I'm, I'm rooting for that, but I don't know. We'll see. Um, but it's cold. This is Advent. Welcome to Advent. As we look at this passage in Matthew, yeah, I'm asking God to make it come alive for you. Uh, He's made it come alive for me, and I don't want to get in the way of making it for you. So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and just ask God to enliven this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are here. I thank you that that you are here, and and this is your word. You've revealed yourself to us in this word, and you want us to understand it. You want us to grapple with it. You want us to wrestle with it. Lord, make it come alive to us. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you entered our world, that you made all of this possible. Thank you, Spirit, that you are here right now to empower this word to come real to us. Lord, may the words that I say not get in the way of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share just about it. Kind of, it's probably the weirdest auction I've ever heard of. Uh, and it's something that happened back in 1926. 1926, um, there was an auction. It was at the U.S. Patent Office. It was called the Great Patent Auction of 1926. Um, the the patent auction uh, office was, was opened in 1836, and I, just, I had to write this down because I knew I wouldn't remember this. A general repository of all the inventions and improvements in machinery and manufacturers of which our country can claim the honor. Opened up in, um, 19, in 1836, and immediately they started to get overwhelmed with all these applications for patents on these ideas and inventions um, 
40000 a year. So after about 15, 20 years of that, the patent office folks got together and said, we've got to kind of slow this down because there's a lot of harebrained ideas that once we give them a patent, they don't know how to make this thing work. So they said, we've got to have a model of what you're going to invent. And you, when you give your idea, there's got to be a model with it. So they put that in about the 1860s. And people started bombarding this office with more and more models until they ran out of room. Um, thousands and thousands. There was like, again, 30 to 40,000 a year of these models that were coming in. Until finally, about the 1890s, they said, let's stop the model business. We don't have any more, bi we don't have any more room. And um, so they stopped that. But they still had all these models. So 30 years later, 1926, they came up with the idea Let's auction off all of these models. Here's just a picture of, I guess you call him the secretary of the patent office. I don't know. But um, he's standing at this table with all these kind of small models. And this is only a fraction because the auction comprised 150,000 models. And it took six years to auction all of them off. Six years. There were such things as uh, there, was a, there was a metal illuminated cat that looked like a cat, and it was supposed to be to, to rid your house of mice. Um, there was a snoring device, a, a way to, to solve your snoring problem. It looked like a trumpet. I didn't see a picture of this. I had to read a description, but it was a trumpet that curved around. Somehow it would fit over the snorer's mouth uh, and go around to the ear. Uh, so his or her, him or her, um, if they were snoring, they'd wake themselves up. I'm not sure how they slept with that thing. Or, or maybe it was the spouse that would whack them. I'm not sure. Um, there were all of these wacky little models. Um, and you know, I can laugh at it. I, I'm sure there were others that were just as far-brained as that. But um, when you step back, when you step back and just look at this thing, 150,000 models of things that never really made it through the patent office process, 150,000 broken dreams 150,000 disappointed ideas. I, I, I say that kind of um, firsthand experience. Not that I was born in 1926. But let me show you something. As you can see here, this is, this is a little device I came up with about 10 years ago. I thought, man, this is going to revolutionize exercise. Um, I really... Stop that laughing. This is not fun. <laughs> Um, and, you know, thankfully, I've got a wife who's willing to demonstrate there in the picture. Um, but this, I call this the walk gym. And this was going to be somewhere. I just envisioned people during lunch hour going out and walking and exercising both their upper and their lower. I just thought, this is going to, this is the cat's meow. Um, I, I had a whole retirement plan based upon the walk gym. And then someone suggested, you know, Dan, before you go too far, you better talk to a patent lawyer. I said, okay, so I checked into some patent lawyers and found out they're very expensive. And then I found a friend who had a friend who was a patent lawyer, so he set me up. And about five days later, he called me, and he said, Dan, no, uh, I'm afraid this would never make it through the patent process. Uh, you're copying too many inventions already. And you know what? I have to admit, he saved me from probably bankruptcy. I, I must admit that. Um, but... I experienced a good amount of disappointment because I was really thinking this thing was good. I still got it hanging in my garage and silly, but I still walk with it once in a while. And it's nice to see my wife is willing to model it too. Um, anyway, 
You know, those things pale by the disappointment that we're going to see today. Because what we're going to look at today is of a man who had given himself to a purpose so fully, so intensely. And then he found himself lost in his expectations, wondering, is this ever going to be the right thing? And we see in, in chapter 11, verse 2, when John was in prison, he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And just for some of you wondering, this is not John the Apostle. This is John the Baptist. This is who Larry talked about last week. This was the man who was so fervent, so, uh, so strong in his proclamation. This was the man who realized, I have, I have come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Um, this is the man when he saw Jesus coming. He said, this is the Lamb of God. This is the man who, when it came to baptizing him, he said, no, I'm not worthy to baptize. You need to baptize me. And Jesus said, no, no, no. We need to follow what God has designed. Um, this is the man who said to his own disciples, that's the man you need to follow. Go after Jesus. And now, he's coming back and he's saying, are you really the one? Are you really the one? You know, I wondered, where are we going to go with this? And yet I had to realize, wow. Um, and this is not profound. I, I tried to figure out, how do I say this in really a profound way that I sound wise? But it's simply this. Doubt. Don't be discouraged that if it could happen to John the Baptist, it's probably going to happen to us. And, you know, as I reflected on that statement, I probably shouldn't even put it in the future. It probably has happened to us. And I think every one of us in this room who's been walking with Jesus Christ have had times of disappointment, times of questioning, times of doubting. And I want to tell you, that's okay. That is okay. Your faith is not going to get shipwrecked by asking questions. God is not going to turn his back on you simply because you're expressing some doubts about him. And I would tell you, when you're questioning and doubting and wrestling and struggling, God knows you're doing that, so talk to him about it. Don't let the doubts fester within you. Um, you know, I think in the church... We haven't done a great job of giving each other the freedom to be able to wrestle, to be able to question, to be able to struggle sometimes in our faith. I have a good friend, good, good friend, who um, a, a few years ago, about, about eight years ago, went through an intense struggle. And, um, you know, at the time, I, I said, oh, he's going through a crisis of his faith. Uh, his, his wife was had a debilitating disease. Uh, there were a number of folks close to him that had passed away. It was a hard time in his life. Um, he wrestled, he struggled, he asked a lot of questions. I thought, oh man, is he ever going to come around? But you know what? Now I would not say it was a crisis of his faith. I would say it's a refinement of his faith. And I believe that as we are honest enough to admit our, our questions, our struggles, our doubts, God comes to us and helps us to grow in the midst of that. So here's John. 
John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He sent his disciple to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And there's two things that jump out at me right there. One is, he's in prison. In pr- you know, prison will do a job on your perspective. He's in prison. The other thing is, he heard the deeds of the Messiah. We'll, we'll touch bases with that later, but uh, John is in prison, and um, I was kind of surprised. I, I did a little bit of investigating. Yes, it doesn't tell us what prison he was put in, but there was a historian, Josephus, who wrote lots about Jewish history, and he said he was put in a prison called uh, Machairus. Machairus. It's um, down east of the Dead Sea, and it was um, an edifice or a, really a summer palace that was built by Herod the Great. And after Herod the Great died, he gave his palaces to his sons, and this one went to Herod Antipas, was his name. Um, Herod Antipas had um, gone and had the hots for his sister-in-law. And so he went and they kind of planned. And anyway, he stole his brother's wife. And John just happened to have the audacity to speak out against that in public. And so he was imprisoned. I was surprised to find that this imprisonment, um, we read about it in Matthew chapter 4. And it came shortly after. In fact, it might have come during the time that Jesus was being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Boy, when you think about that, he had been baptized by John, and it says immediately he was taken out of the wilderness for 40 days. And then it says when he came back, he heard that John had been imprisoned, and so Jesus went north, up into the Galilean area where it was safer. I had no idea that John was imprisoned that close to the time of Jesus' baptism. So here was John sending this message from this edifice. But let me tell you, it wasn't quite in that area of the edifice. They've done a lot of excavating. They found a lot of ruins, but they went down to the bottom of the mountain, and they found this, a dungeon. And you walk through that door, and it goes off to more rooms where people were imprisoned. I don't see a lot of windows. can't imagine staying in the dark in that dungeon. But it tells us, it tells us that John, while he was there, he heard about all the deeds of the Messiah. So that means his disciples must have been allowed to visit him while he was imprisoned in that dungeon. So I went back through Matthew. Started in Matthew 4 after he was imprisoned. And I tried to look and see what were the things that Jesus did. He goes up into Galilee. Uh, He teaches in Galilee. And then it says, amazing thing, he healed all kinds of diseases. And then you have chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in 5, 6, and 7, you have the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, which a number of people believe that's a template for what Jesus preached in many different places. Then you come to chapter 8. And I had to write this down because there was a lot in chapter, chapter 8. He, he healed a person of leprosy. He healed a person of paralysis and, and, and reshaped their legs so he could walk again. He, he exercised a person of demons. And he calmed a storm. That's a huge one, I think. Calming a storm. And I believe all of that was reported to John. Um, Chapter 9, there was a paralytic that he healed. He raised a girl from the dead. He cleansed a person of blindness and leprosy. All of these things 
Jesus did, and I believe every one of those things were reported back to John. So I asked the question, so John, that's a good resume. That, that's pretty good stuff that Jesus is doing. Why the questions? Why the doubt? Because he still sends that question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Um, so I had to go back, back to Matthew chapter 3, which Larry looked at last week. And let me just remind you what John was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Someone's coming after me who's so powerful, I can't even carry his sandals. But he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, burning up the chaff with unquenchable that's the message that John had been preaching months and months and months in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, who he recognized as Jesus. And then he hears what Jesus is doing. He doesn't hear a lot about winnowing forks. He hears about healing. He hears about forgiveness. He hears about mercy. His disciples, John's disciples, even go to Jesus and say, how come you guys don't uh, fast? like the rest of us do. And I bet you when they went, they might have heard Jesus say this statement, I require mercy, not sacrifice. That's an expectation that I don't think John had. I don't think Jesus quite fit what John anticipated he was supposed to do. Often our expectations of how God should work can cause us to miss the work he's actually doing. You know, I, as I wrote that, I was trying to think, okay, what in my life? Because, you know, when you preach a sermon, you're supposed to have some kind of illustration. And frankly, as I was trying to think and process, I was, I was going, hey, you know, Carrie and I have had a pretty good life. I can't really complain about everything. So I, I said to Carrie, hey, hon, and I explained this point, and I said, you know, can you think of any expectations we had of God that may have caused us to kind of miss what he's doing? And she goes, I don't even believe you're asking that question. <laughs> and, then, and then she said, duh. Um, I, I added the little head bump, but duh. Dan, don't you remember, we wanted to have kids. We thought... God was going to give us children. And you know, instead we got cancer. Um, that, that shot me back 30 years ago. As I reflected on what she had said, and I realized, oh, that's so true. When we got married, we had all the dreams of any young married couple. We thought we'd have kids. We'd be able to pour our lives into these kids and nurture them and watch them grow. We thought we'd be able to see them have kids themselves and be grandparents. We looked so forward to that discovered that word infertility and then as we tried one thing after another after another and different fertility drugs then all of a sudden yeah Carrie gets diagnosed with cancer and then we were, we were in a fight for her life and I can remember nights 
going to God and said, are you for real? And you know, when I was saying that, it wasn't so much questioning the realness of God. It was questioning the type of God I expected him to be. Because I found myself saying, I'm not sure if you're so good. I'm not sure if you're so loving. Because this is hard. I didn't expect this. Yeah. Those expectations that many times we camp on for God cause us to miss the work that he's actually doing. Um, so we come back. John sends the disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And you know, in that little verse, there's another thing that pops out to me. John sent his disciples to Jesus. He was stuck in that dungeon, yes. He had to take secondhand reports, but John did not sit on his unfulfilled expectations, but he brought them out before God, before Jesus, and he went to the source of his frustration. And he asked Jesus directly. And I would encourage us to do that. Like I said earlier, God already knows that we've got the questions. God already knows that we may be wrestling with doubt. He may be, he already knows we're wrestling with disappointment. I believe he's waiting for us to have the courage to come to him and explain that to him. You may seem, say that sounds kind of crazy, Dan, if he already knows it. Yeah, he wants to hear from his children. And he's not going to abandon you. Just like Jesus did not abandon John. Jesus instead says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Listen to this list. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. All those things that I found in Matthew. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. Tell John those things. Report back to John that. Now, one observation I make in that. John asked the question, are you the Messiah? And Jesus never answered. He never said, yes. Or he never said, no. Instead, he gave him evidence. And then he said, John, you figure it out. You are the one who's going to have to decide where you stand with me. And he says the same thing to us. He says the same thing to us. Where do we stand? with Jesus. Um, I believe that as, um, as John received this message, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, I believe that that might have jogged in John's mind a little bit as, as he thought back to a reference in the Old Testament from a prophet named Isaiah who said some very similar things about the messianic time that was coming, the kingdom that was going to come in Isaiah 35. He said these verses, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Sounds very similar to what Jesus is doing. And we may say, well, John, why didn't you catch on? Well, let's look at the verse that came right before this. Verse 4 in Isaiah 35. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then 
Will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped? Then will the lame leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy. I would just say that as, as John reads those verses, he's probably saying, come on, it talks about vengeance, it talks about retribution. I'm stuck in a dungeon because I spoke up about that. I spoke up about the king's unrighteousness, and now I'm stuck in a dungeon. There's many times we feel we're in a dungeon. There's many times we feel that, that we're stuck. I, boy, I identify with this. I, I love being a pastor. You know, don't get me wrong. I love being a pastor. But there are some days you just want to throw out. Um, there are some days that, you know, you're just, at the end of the day, you're exhausted. There was a day I had recently, and I shared this with my life group. They were kind of like my therapy session. Um, but it was a, a day that began with a, a request from someone, and it broke my heart because their, their infant had been born so, so, so prematurely. And it was a daily struggle to keep this little guy alive. And then there was a message I got that a friend was diagnosed with cancer. And then there was a benevolence case that just ate my lunch. As I tried to work on this and solve this, and I was just so frustrated that we could not come to grips and, and correct this. And then there was someone who had to be rushed into emergency surgery and wanted to have prayer. And I wanted all those things fixed. I so much wanted to be able to say, hey, I can, I can correct that because God's here. I've, I've been on you know, lots of healing sessions. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to say I don't believe in healing. I do. But I'll tell you, the majority of those healing sessions haven't healed. Maybe there's something wrong with my faith. I think it's more the reality of where we live now. I think John's I think John's expectations of Jesus uh, he, he was expecting this wide wide repentance and brokenness that was going to cover the land I think my expectations of Jesus many times is he's going to solve all the problems and I think sometimes if we expect only the exceptional we're going to miss the miracles of every day and the kingdom that God has established has entered the life of each and every one of us in an everyday way. I would even say in the mundane, because I think there's many miracles in the mundane. Carrie and I still don't have kids. You know, God may do some Abraham and Sarah thing. That would be exceptional. I'm not expecting it. But if I camped in that, I would miss what God has done the last 30 years of our lives because I've seen a miracle happening in my wife and myself. But I think especially of Carrie, is, uh, uh, yes, we still grieve the fact that we don't have kids. We, we do, we, and we grieve the fact that we'll never have grandkids. But you know what? It forces us to kind of evaluate, okay, what are our lives going to be about? And as Carrie wrestled with that, she said, well, I want to pass on legacy to kids. And that revolutionized her teaching. She became one of the best elementary school teachers I have ever seen. And she's not here now, so I can say that. Um, 
I used to love to go into her classroom and just watch how she worked with those kids. She brought hope and structure and all, all kinds of wisdom into their lives. I loved it. I don't know that that would have necessarily happened if we were totally focused on the kids that we expected God to give us. He had other plans for us. People have told me, I've got a lot of kids. Eh, Carrie had 25 a year. I don't know if I'd have that many. Um, but I had to realize I have been able to influence people. And for that, I'm, for that, I'm grateful. Um, and I think many times, yes, we expect that the, the kingdom of God comes into this setting and it's going to come into it with exceptional power and it's going to correct all the wrongs. And yet we wrestle with the fact that I still struggle with anxiety. I still have some fears about the future. I have friends who are still blind. People who I'm watching them get older and, you know, they're not going to be raised from the dead. But then that brings me to just kind of rest in the fact of the kingdom of God, which Jesus said he came and he ushered in. There was a theologian, I, I'm sure there's theologians all through the ages who have said this, but I remember back in, Sarah, uh, in seminary, a theologian who said, the kingdom of God is, is here, it's now, it's already, but it's not yet. By that he meant, yes, the influence of the kingdom is here, but the fullness of the kingdom is not here yet. And I heard a very good friend, very good friend who, I'm so grateful for the way he explained this. He said, the day is going to come, yes, the kingdom influence is right here now, but the day is going to come when the kingdom will have no more competition. And it will have all the freedom just to flow. And the power that Jesus talked about is going to be so real. The power is here now, but we're in a broken world. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to what Jesus then said. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Kind of get a loose paraphrase. I think it means, blessed is the one who believes in me in spite of what he expected me to be like. Blessed is the man who believes in me in spite of what he believes in me. I, I don't think he's saying this word uh, to John necessarily. I mean, it could be a challenge to John, but I think it's a challenge to all that crowd that's around him. What are you, you going to do with me? What are you going to do with me? I think it's a challenge to all of us who are sitting here today. What are we going to do with Jesus? Jesus goes on to talk about John a little bit. And just quickly, he says to this crowd, what would you go out there uh, to hear when you went out in the wilderness? Did you go out to uh, see a blade of reed grass waving in the wind? Um, you know, it was interesting reading about this reed grass. Uh, Jesus is up in the Galilean area, and the, the thing I read was that hillsides of reed grass are there in Galilee. And when the wind blows, guess what? They all go the same way. Or they all go back. They're all blown by the wind. And it's kind of like the picture of a teacher who's just teaching whatever's popular at the moment. Whatever's going to tickle the ears of people. Did you go out in the wilderness to, to hear John just tickle your ears? No, you didn't. It's a rhetorical question. Did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? Well, you didn't find him because he had camel skin. No, fine clothes are found in the royal palaces. And John's in a royal palace, but he's down in the dungeon 
go there. We weren't allowed. No, you didn't go there to see somebody with sophistication. No. Did you go to see a prophet? Yes. You went to see a prophet, and guess what? We haven't had a prophet for 400 years. And you went to hear the prophet that God has risen. And he's not a prophet like any other prophet. He surpasses all the prophets. Um, John was the one who was, who was coming to, to prepare the way for the Messiah. John's the one who's coming to announce his coming. John is unique. John is the greatest of all prophets. As far as uh, men born of women, John is the best. You know, I believe as I, as I picture John in that dungeon, as I see him wrestling with the answer that Jesus sent to him, as I see him going back to revisit Isaiah 35, and you know, I shouldn't even say that. He didn't have any chapters. Good grief. As I see him taking that passage, I see him going down farther into that passage, and he comes to this, this phrase, and a highway will be there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. And I read those verses, and it's so easy for me to say, oh, that's something in the future. But Jesus said, no, the kingdom is now. And so those things that I'm reading up there are now. We come to this place singing in God's presence. I love how Aaron leads us in worship. But that's because of Jesus Christ. He opened the way so we could worship in his presence. We come with everlasting joy crowning our heads. You know, every one of you who has given your life to Jesus Christ is an eternal being right now. Yeah, you're in a body that's dying, some of us more so than others, but you're in an eternal being everlasting joy is upon your head gladness and joy will overtake sorrow and sighing will flee away I know that we will have sorrow I know there's going to be days that we sigh but let me tell you Jesus promises us it's going to flee eventually it's going to go away there's hope there's joy because of this man Jesus blessed is the one who believes in me in spite of what expected me to be like you know there was one last thing that Jesus said when he was talking to this crowd and that's these words he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John and Jesus just said John's the, the greatest of any man who was born of woman but then he says he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John yeah the kingdom does not erase the problems, the issues that we face. But I will tell you something. I believe very much when John received that word, we know he wasn't freed from prison. But I believe he was freed in prison. He was freed in a way that he could face whatever they threw at him, and that was execution. And I believe that the kingdom of God enters into our world and frees us within the circumstances we find ourselves. That word blessed. Blessed is the man who does not stumble on account of me. That word blessed, makurios, it means has the internal strength, that, that gladness, that joy, that circumstances cannot change. 
have for eternity, crowning our heads with joy. And it takes me back to a verse, a verse that's very popular right now, a verse that's attributed to an angel, talked to some shepherds on a hill, and basically said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. It doesn't mean you have to have your act together. It doesn't mean you have to have all your doubts and questions taken care of. It doesn't mean that you will not have disappointments again. But it means that we will walk in the joy and the strength of knowing that Jesus is the one who has made the difference. And he asks us today, what are you going to do with me? Will I be your Savior, your Messiah? Or are you going to look for somebody else? Hmm. You know what? John wrestled with that. Build something. I didn't mean to get so serious. Um, let's all stand because I want us to sing Joy to the World. Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Jesus is here, and we've got an everlasting crown of glory on our heads.